Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about environmental causes of cancer with Dr. Vasilis Vasilou. Dr. Vasilou is professor and chair of the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Yale School of Public Health, and Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. So, you know, we talk a lot on this show about cancer and different risk factors for cancer. We talk about genetic causes, um, but tell us a little bit more about environmental causes of cancer. This is a great point. You know, there are a lot of uh, environmental factors which can affect the uh, risk for cancer. And that could be also at the epigenetic level, but also it could be affecting differently people that they have some pregenetic, some genetic predisposition. So in other words, you have population that might be vulnerable to the environmental exposures and they might have higher risk of developing cancers than others. For example, I mean, the same thing, just like uh, cigarette smoking, you know, you have people that are very sensitive. Uh, you have people that they might smoke and they might never get cancer, but you also have the secondhand smokers that they get exposed to much less um, levels of cigarette smoke and they do get. So it's also the genetic plays a role, you know, what what kind of genetic makeup it, if it individual has. Right. Um, and so certainly your genetics d- determines how vulnerable or not vulnerable you're going to be to environmental exposures. And I think that your comment about cigarette smoking is a good one. It's certainly uh, a very uh, obvious environmental uh, exposure that we all know is linked to lung cancer. And so regardless of your genetics, um, my recommendation is always don't smoke. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. What what other environmental factors are there uh, that people should know about that, that cause cancer? Well, quite a few. You know, air pollution. Air pollution is a major concern, and it has a lot of what we call volatile organic uh, carcinogens that are present, and it's the same thing like the contents in and cigarette smoke. That's mm. what I was telling you about. And it's not only, you know, um, the environment, air pollution, it's also water pollution. So our water, which has take less attention than the air pollution, water contamination could be um, an, impact, in, in, an important factor for cancer causing due to the heavy metals and sometimes the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that might be there, but essentially the metals which can cause our pesticides. You know, that's an important thing, pesticides in the drinking water. So let's talk a little bit about water pollution because I think it's a good thing to bring up. Certainly air pollution, there's not a whole lot that we can do about air pollution aside from lobbying uh, our our, uh, government officials to try to ensure that we reduce air pollution, um, you know, and simply want to try to reduce our risk uh, of developing lung cancer as, a re- as it relates to air pollution. But in terms of water, um, tell us more about 
that. Is drinking water that we get from the tap generally safe in terms of, you know, all of these hydrocarbons that you're talking about? Uh, or should we be drinking filtered water or purified water? Like, how, how does that work? That's a very good point. In most of the cases, public water is pretty safe. And because there are certain regulations that, you know, they, they, the certain criteria that public water has to meet in order to be available. However, uh, we have to be aware of some emerging contaminants that they are not, you know, we don't have regulatory limits yet. And it, those are like the per, uh, perfluorinated compounds, which is very recent right now. Even the EPA right now is having more and more studies to do that. So, but remember another factor is that about 40% of the population in the United States drink water from a well water, mm-hmm. from wells. And wells are not under federal regulation. So right. This, you know, for I just can give you a, a very small example uh, is arsenic can occur naturally, right? So mm-hmm. arsenic, it could be there or, you know, and it can go to the water and people don't measure for it. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the areas of the drinking water that can be a problem. So I think we need better regulation for the drinking water in every aspect. Or as I said, some of the other um, chemicals that we don't really know. For example, in Connecticut, we have, and in in general, northern uh, New England, we have um, one compound which is called 1.4-dioxane, which is a non-epatocarcinogen. In, at least in mice, it's a probable carcinogen for humans based on the risk assessment. And this is simply yet not regulated. It has been recognized as one of the emerging contaminants, but people, you know, um, we don't have yet the appropriate facilities to regulate. And there is no regulation at the federal level on that. Hmm. But it is... So so northern New England does not have regulations on this it's entire it's 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 a probable hepatocarcinogen it's not regulated yet so every state at the federal level every state puts some limits of you know how much would be acceptable to have it in the drinking water but in some of the areas for as i said the well waters you know are not monitored so so I guess uh, my my first question is, uh, why is it that a known carcinogen is not regulated? Uh, and how do we change that? Well, that's what we're trying to do with, you know, actually, uh, right now, um, the Environmental Protection Agency has announced a big research for this particular compound. We know that uh, also the perfluorinated compounds are also under uh, very big research in order, you know, you have to have some data in order to make the, the legislation and at, the, at least at the federal level. Yeah. But if something is a known carcinogen, one would think that that would, that the research would already be there. Well, you know, there is, when it comes to risk assessment, people, you know, can see it from different points of view. There might be some people say, you know, we don't have enough data on population studies that it shows that it's a carcinogen. It might be a possible carcinogen in humans and hepatocarcinogenic in mice, but they want to have some more evidence, research-based evidence. So that's why, and again, that's why we call them emergent water contaminants. Right. So certainly for people who are drinking from well water, which as you say is about 40% of the population, 
um, there are no regulations. And so for those people, uh, your recommendation is to drink bottled water, purified water? Well, what I would recommend is for people to check their waters for the quality, you know, for contaminants, and they have to do it, you know. And what's really kind of scary is some of the people do not want to do that because if they found out that the water, their well water is contaminated, you know, they perhaps the house will lose the value. Mm -hmm. So people are afraid. Yes, it is more safe to use, you know, plastic bottles, uh, bottled water if if you're not sure. But I would argue that everybody should check their waters. They should check it on, on 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 a year basis. And for people who are drinking from publicly available water, that's generally safe. But even there, there are carcinogens that are not regulated and measured. Yes, yes. I mean, in some cases, and I'll give you in Long Island, for example, right? In Long Island, um, public water comes from well water, right? So, and some of these wells for the public water are very close to landfills where you have several, you know, chemicals being disposed in there and essentially they're going to leak down to the drinking water. Uh, but those are not purified when it comes out of the tap in a public, uh, publicly available water? Well, they're purified, you know, and they're, they're checked. And as I said, in general, public waters are very good. But some in some of these public waters, for example, the chemicals that they are not regulated, 1.4 dioxin, it has a very great variability in Long Island. In some of the cases, it's very high even to what is being recommended by the state. It's like 20 or 30, 40 times more than it's been suggested and recommended. And so should people, I mean, because, I mean, all of this is a little bit scary to me um, and, and making me think, geez, you know, if there are chemicals in my water that are not regulated, that are potentially a carcinogen, should I, A, be drinking bottled water, and we can get into whether the plastic bottles have uh, carcinogens or potential carcinogens in them as well, and how uh, free and of carcinogens and how regulated bottled water is? Or B, should we be filtering water? And if we filter water, uh, is that just as good? Well, first of all, I don't want to create a panic to people and to uh, including you. So there are some chemicals in there that we need to, you know, to, to study it further and get really um, good results in terms of risk assessment. But yes, there are some chemicals that we should be concerned. Um, usually, uh, the states monitor their public waters, and they are fully aware of this. Now, if something is not regulated, you know, and of course, some people will say, oh, it's safe. Some people will say, no, it's not safe. And I guess it's the risk assessment that supports that. But in general, as I said, in all the public waters are pretty very in very good very good position. Um, public waters, you know, usually, uh, as I said, they're pretty safe, and um, filtering is not a bad idea. Filtering is not a bad idea at all. To just use a standard filter that you right. can put on your tap, or you could uh, yeah. have a jug that I use it uh, in my house. A, you a know, filter. The, yeah. Uh, as opposed to buying bottled water? Well, you could. The bottled water is very well maintained. I mean, checked as well.
you know, some people have concerns about bottled water in terms of the plastic bottle and leaching of chemicals from the plastic bottle into the water. Is there any truth to that? Well, um, in general, plastics, if they have the what we call the uh, the compounds which they can cause endocrine disruptions, that used to be in the in the old days. Now, the plastics that they have are much safer, and they're you know the water is much cleaner. Yeah. So there is no. We try to avoid this leaching out. Yeah, because you know I know that uh, on the internet there's circulating rumors about if you have bottled water and you leave it in your car, uh, that chemicals will leach out of the plastics and cause all kinds of cancers. Well, um, there is, to a certain extent, there is some of that, you know. They usually, people recommend not to use your bottle twice and don't refill it, they, especially those cheap ones that we get the water. Or, you know, if you leave it at your car, maybe the temperature will increase and you have some higher probabilities of of agents leaching out to your water, but I don't think it's to the point that you should be concerned. Okay. So uh, so use a filter for uh, your water or drink bottled water, and if you uh, are living near a well, you should certainly uh, have your water checked. Checked. That's, that's the only thing, you know, check your water. So we talked a little bit about smoking. We talked a little bit about air pollution. We talked a little bit about water pollution. Tell us about other environmental exposures. I know we've we've talked on this show uh, about uh, radon. Certainly, there uh, we should talk a little bit about uh, asbestos, lead paints, and and many of the other. Uh, exposures, people living near landfills or with electric lines overhead are all going to want to know what are the effects of these environmental toxins or potential toxins in terms of their cancer health. But first, we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Vasilis Vasiliu. We're talking about safety of turf fields and environmental causes of cancer. Now, right before the break, we were talking about all kinds of environmental uh, causes of cancer. So we talk certainly about cigarette smoking and all kinds of smoking, as a matter of fact, all of which increases your risk of lung cancer, including by secondhand smoke. Now, that we had pretty much known a little bit about. We talked a little bit about air pollution and then about water pollution. So I, I thought we'd, we'd talk a little bit about other potential environmental causes of cancer. And one of them that we frequently think about and certainly talk about is alcohol. So do you want to talk a little bit about alcohol as a cause of cancer? Right. You know, 
A lot of people give a lot uh, emphasis to the epidemics we have with opioids. However, we have a, a, a constant problem with alcohol. And, you know, in addition to all the, the addiction and alcoholism, what is really depressing is the increase of hepatocellular carcinoma in the United States at young ages. Mm-hmm. So young people because the binge drinking has been increased quite a bit. So we have higher uh, incidence of you know, fibrosis and cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma within you know, the area of the United States. And this, uh, you know, it is uh, well known that uh, alcohol can cause at least eight different types of cancers, eight or nine different types of cancers. Now, in some cases, there is significant evidence that it might act protective against certain types of cancer. But my point here is we need to bring awareness of the people, you know, uh, in the people that alcohol is a cancer-causing environmental insult. Right. So if you're going to drink, drink responsibly and in moderation, because certainly, I mean, it it increases your risk of hepatocellular cancer and pancreatic cancer. Colon cancer, cancer pancreatic and breast cancer as well. All kinds of cancers. So um, so really, uh, it, it does deserve to be in the category of carcinogen. And along those same lines, you know, the other, quote, carcinogen that people need to think about is obesity, I mean, and, and fat, um, because that is now people are saying that the new cancer, the new, the new form of smoking is sitting. Yes. Well, it is absolutely true. And the, I'll tell you what the deadly combination is, is alcohol, smoking and obesity. Mm-hmm. So because the obesity, it has an altered uh, metabolism and this can affect a lot. And, you know, when you get to add the alcohol action, uh, it is, you know, additive. Yeah. So certainly uh, things to think about. Now, along those same lines, you know, people are trying to get their kids active and healthy. And, and you know, I know that you have an interest in um, the, the turf fields that kids play on, like the way they play soccer. Since when is that a carcinogen? Well, let me tell you something. First of all, um, it is the artificial turf and it's the the infilling, you know, the stuff that we put into the to the artificial turf, which is recycled tire. Mm. Now, the tire, if you have an old tire, you cannot burn it, you cannot bury it, and you cannot throw it into the water simply because the chemicals that are there, and these are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that they will be found in your cigarette smoke, in your uh, air pollution, uh, combustion and everything. So they're present there. So we cannot do this and then we are allowed to ground up these tires and put it on a field that those kids will be playing and will be exposed. And it's not only the artificial, it's not only the stadiums. They had it on the playgrounds of the of kindergartens. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the stuff that there are volatile um, compounds that they will go into the into the atmosphere and they will reach. You know, you will breed. But also another factor that people don't appreciate is that the artificial turf fields 
they can, re- they can reach temperatures at least between 20 or 30 degrees Celsius higher than the normal grass. So in other words, you just have a plastic and you burn it. Mm-hmm. So all these chemicals will go and you will breathe. And when you are exercising, you are expo- you heavenly, uh, uh, heavenly, so you inhale all these compounds. And there is a lot of anti-risk assessment from the um, manufacturers, which, you know, they recruit some people and essentially they're doing literature review. So, and they try to convince that this is safe for the people to use it. No, it's not safe until you prove that. So there are not really good epidemiological data to say that it is safe. This is an event that has started very lately, so we need to collect more data. We know in my laboratory, we have, and in collaboration with the National Toxicology Program, we analyzed using a predictive toxicology and deep learning, we analyzed 300 chemicals that have been reported to be constituents of the rubber, and 196 of them are meet all the criteria for being carcinogenic or genotoxic. In other words, either can cause cancer or they can cause mutation to other stuff. But if these are, I mean, so I get the whole concept of, you know, you're taking a tire, you're grinding it up, it can get hot, and it can leach these carcinogens or or potential carcinogens into the air. And to the water. And into the water. But if kids are playing on it, you know, presumably we're worried about uh, them leaching into the air because they're not, they're not, there usually is no water uh, in in these playgrounds uh, unless there happens to be a well nearby or something like that. But if, if it leaches into the air, you know, and, and these are open air fields, then that toxin could potentially get diluted. And so how how much of an impact does that have on these kids? And does it really cause cancer? Or is it just a potential risk because it's a known carcinogen? Well, you put a very good question. Let me address that from the fact that in most of the cases, these are indoor facilities that they have artificial turf. Mm. Second, in terms of... Uh, and. The one thing that I want to tell about the indoor facilities is they don't have the proper ventilation. Mm-hmm. So there is a constant accumulation in there. You know, there is if you can go, there is heat, there is humidity, there is everything. So it is hi- highly likely that you can achieve really high concentrations. Second one, the point that you make it. Yes, you are absolutely right. It's the air and it's but remember, goalkeepers are always down. Mm-hmm. They're very close, like 20 or 30 centimeters from this. So they're getting really the high emission right there. It's not that you're, you know, standing up all the time. Goalkeepers actually, uh, according to what we found is, uh, what they found is the more sensitive population. So, and the other thing is I want to mention is the temperature, summer times. Just imagine if a field goes up to 80 degrees and you say is the air. No, it's not only the air. Most of these players getting injured and they scratch their bodies, right? And some of those, if you can see, I, I, you can go to the internet and you can see people that they have those scratches and the blood comes in direct constant, I mean, uh, contact with those grounds of the artificial turf. And... The question is very simple. Why do we have to stick with artificial turf? Why don't we use an organic infill? Why don't we use 
uh, the second generation of the plastics that they don't emit all these chemicals. Why do we have to use artificial turf? That's my point. Yes, it is a risk of exposure. There are do we chemical- know? Do we know that people who play soccer, for example, on an artificial turf with all of the things that you've said, right? They're, it gets hot. They could uh, be exposed if they get a scratch. Uh, the goalkeepers are closer to the turf. Do we know that those people, just on basic epidemiologic studies, do we know that those people end up getting more cancers than people who play on turfs that are organic or play outside or play on other fields? Do we have that data? We do not have the data, and that's what we need, the data. I was interviewed by CNN a couple of uh, last year, I think, and also by the Canadian TV. And what I said is, we need more data. This is a recent event; it hasn't been accumulated. There is no systematic, really good epidemiological review. And what we're doing now, from my department, is we want to monitor mm-hmm. the personal exposure of the athlete. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, we have the wearable monitors that my colleague Crystal Polit has developed that we can monitor to what extent the, the, the uh, athlete has been exposed. And then we can look at his blood and his urine and we can find out those chemicals in there. That's what I called, you know, uh, a more comprehensive study that we need to do. Nobody is doing that. EPA at the beginning said everything was fine until a couple of years ago when they said, you know what, maybe it's not that safe. So as we speak, there are three major studies, including our study. There is one at U, um, at uh, California uh, Environmental Protection Agency. This is a huge study that they're doing. There is also a study that we know at the National Toxicology Program. We have worked with the National Toxicology Program, but we're doing our own research also, which in our we are the only ones who will try to monitor the exposures that they occur into those athletes, into those kids. You know, and you know, and see if we can find it in their biofluids, right. which will give us a very good. We'll be in a better position to address those comments. Yeah. What about you know people similarly who live near a landfill? Uh, you know, you were talking about how this artificial turf is made up of tires that are ground up. What about the people who are living near garbage dumps or landfills or um, or near shipyards or whatever? I mean, are they at increased exposure yes. as well? Yes, they are. Yes, they are, with no doubt, you know. And, you know, the landfills, there is a lot of reports that there will be stuff leaching out to the water. Again, one more time, there are going to be stuff that's going to be into the air. But essentially, my concern would be whatever comes into the ground and comes to the groundwater. Now, remember, in addition to the groundwater, uh, there is also contaminating soils, which eventually, if you're growing stuff in there, you know, vegetables and things like that, there will be some of those metals and things that they will be transmitted into the plants and you're eventually going to be consuming it. So this is where essentially we're talking for environmental justice and people have to be fully aware of all these landfills and we have to have a better protection. I mean, when you when you speak of it that way, then we start wondering where does our food come from, right? You go to the local market uh, and you buy strawberries which came out of the ground. You have no idea whether that... A strawberry patch was near a landfill, not near a landfill. Um, what kind of chemicals were in the soil that was grown? I mean, how far do we take this in terms of 
um, protecting ourselves against these carcinogens? Well, I don't think we take it that seriously. And actually, there was a major study that was published actually in my mother country in Greece uh, a couple of months ago that they were finding that the vegetables from a particular area which they, uh, they were taking the water from a river and that river was contaminated by the industrial sites and landfills and all the vegetables they had metal levels at about 100 times higher compared to the other areas. So how, how close we monitor that? I don't know. I don't, you know, and how we should do it, I think we should do a better job in, uh, you know, monitor this. You, Everybody assumes that everything is clean and nice, but, you know, there might be some contamination. You know, it is very well known that some of the, um, for example, rice might contain some arsenic. And arsenic, again, you know, it is, um, it's a pollutant, but also it's a natural occurring stuff. So, we need to pay more attention into that. And as a matter of fact, uh, next month in April, I'm working with Waters. We're trying to set up uh, how to use the technologies in order to advance monitoring of the foods and, you know, um, contaminated food from all these pollutants. Dr. Vasilis Vasilou is professor and chair of the Department of Environmental Health Sciences at the Yale School of Public Health. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.